Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Campbell. I'm a doula in Washoe County, Nevada, a Medicaid provider, a lactation educator, childbirth educator, and mom of 18. You can find me and connect on doulainreno.com. Remember, give a shout out to those who are brave enough to share their stories with us on how they have become parents. Let's dive in. Welcome to Becoming Parents Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Campbell, and today I'm on with Graciela. How are you today? I'm doing so great, Jennifer. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Also, I want to point out that you have a four-year-old that's got special needs who is in the vicinity, and I told you I do not want you to be stressed about that, that this is real moments, real life. <laughs> so people are aware of that if there are any interruptions. I want you to jump in and tell us a story about what it was like for you to become a parent. So I actually became a parent when I was 13. Um, My mother had our youngest sibling. She had many, um, what are the words? Miscarriages in between us. So I'm 13 years older and she went to work right after. So I was there. (laughs) Wow. She walked in. We lived in Puerto Rico. So I have no idea what the child safety laws are there. But I was 13 alone with a newborn. And bless her heart, my mother worked full time, right? Wow. So, you know, she would walk in and find me with the baby on my hip, bathing her. You know how you wash a newborn. You first wash the head. And then you flip the baby and you wash the back. All in the sink, right? Um, I don't even know where I learned that at this point. I just I just know that I was head first with a baby sibling and never needed any more toys and grew up so quick, right? Um, so she was she was my first try, I feel like. You know, my mother would ask me what my toddler sister wanted because I would understand her. And now she's 25 and I'm 38 and we're extremely close. So that was great. Wow. And then, yeah. (laughs) And then my husband and I met when he was a single father with full custody of five children. How Um, old were you then? I mean, I was, I was 30. Okay. So you're older times passed. You basically raised your little sister and, um, you had that, that's a lot of parenting experience. It's not like babysitting for a sibling every once in a while, you were legitimately raising your sister full time. It sounds like. And so you got, you understand kids and everything. That's fine. Your younger sister was an adult, but five kids is a lot to take on, especially if you aren't a mom yourself. So how did that happen? How was that? I know. Right. Um, and also becoming a step parent before becoming a parent. That was very interesting, I feel like. Yeah. Um, like, do you hear him calling me? I'm sorry. No. Um, so the oldest was 18 and the youngest was nine. So out of five, um, nine year old and 11 year old were basically the ones more involved when it came to becoming a stepmother the others were 14 16 18 so they were much older and now the youngest just turned 18 so we did it yeah Um, (laughs) but that was that was intense right um 
going into our relationship, a brand new relationship to fill a void that was much needed and to dive in head first. And it just didn't seem out of character to me. Um, highly sensitive empath, moon in cancer. I don't know if you know about that, but it's just very nurturing, right? Very, what what is needed? What can I do? Uh, very service oriented. And so I just dove in head first. And um, then, of course, as we become more serious and I move in and we continue growing as a family, we start talking about children. Um, but I had, so we met 2016. In 2015, I had a severe endometriosis surgery where I lost my right ovary and I went into the surgery single and with no children with the doctor telling me you might come out with a full hysterectomy and we don't know what we're going to find when we go in. So we'll see. <gasps> Thank Great. you so much. Right? Perfect. Yeah. It was very stressful. And I never imagined having kids, never even pondered the idea of children, right? With my own trauma, with my own, you know, business and whatever, until I come out of the surgery and, you know, we had to remove the ovary, but everything else is great. No cancer, no this, no that. If you want to have children, you should have one right away. Yes. Yes, and it's I always was, the way. Right. And I was 29 at this time, single and with no kids. So I was like, oh, great. First, I need to find who to have kids with. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the ultimatum. Right. Right. It was an ultimatum. And mm. and I had issues with endometriosis forever, but never really dove into birth control as a form to help the endometriosis. Um never really educated myself the way I should have. That's really the bottom line. Mm. And never really received guidance from someone who knew the way it works for other people. So it is what it was, right? And when we meet and we dive into that relationship, we just knew children, you know, I, I wanted to at least try for one, right? Um, and it was actually a deal breaker of mine. You know, if I'm going to date someone and they say they want no more children, then and that's not going to work. Right. But anyway, fast forward to 2018. Um, first time ever dropping the pill with the purpose of getting pregnant. I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, but we tried for about four months and then got pregnant. Right. And then I had to deal with people letting me know that most first pregnancies never make it. Oh my gosh. People are I know, terrible. right? I don't oh understand. I know. <laughs> Why do they see you pregnant in like every horror story? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I just don't or, understand. Right. Or the or the fear of my own endometriosis, right? Like it it was it was um my own anxiety kind of of course flared up with all those insecurities. Um and becoming a parent means nothing. I mean a step parent means nothing compared to having your own, right? So I had no idea. There's no comparison in my head. Right. Um, but it was it was all good, right? I had a great pregnancy. Um, it was healthy, so on and so forth. And then my own ignorance 
<laughs> so I do know a doula, a local doula, whom I always had in the back of my head, but just never again, never educated myself as to what are the differences between your gynecologist or your OBGYN and a doula? Like, what are the pros and cons? Maybe some testimonials. I wasn't a coach back then. I wasn't into coaching people. So I I didn't coach myself through any of it. And, and I tend to isolate when I bring something up and I get that negative response. Like, oh, you know, first babies never make it. Like, oh, okay, we're not talking about anything now, right? And so he had an, he had an April 29th, um, what's the word? Uh, due date. Due date. Right. And at, my birthday is April 26th. Okay. And in my own, in my own ignorance, I thought I want him to be an April baby. So okay. what can I do to get that baby out before, you know, because everybody would be telling me first babies are always late. First babies will be there for a, a longer week than your due date. And it's like all this input that you don't really ask for, right? But people give. And so in my head, I thought I want him to be an April baby. I don't know why. Gosh, so ignorant. I, you know, these are the things I think back on. Um, and so I remember going to my OBGYN the same people that did my surgery, they're still, you know, we still go and whatever. Uh, great practice here in Central Florida. And so I asked her about, what is it that they do? They they open, you open something. Um, Are you talking about stripping your membranes? Yes. Okay. So on my last visit before his due date, I said, yeah, hey, yeah. You know, I've been doing all these other things. I walk three miles a day. I squat. I'm doing all these things to help him along because it's my first baby. Um, we didn't know if it was going to be a normal birth or a C-section. I did have a C-section on my surgery because it was the only way they would remove the ovary. So I oh, had a yeah. C-section in 2015. Right. And so she removes my my membrane and I went into labor the very next day. Mm -hmm. That was April 25th, the day before my birthday. And my birthday comes along and I spent it all in the hospital with contractions and with pain. Um, and by the end of my birthday, I'm talking 11 PM. Now it's an emergency thing. <laughs> because of meconium and all these other things and he's been in there too long and you're not dilated enough and he ended up being an emergency c-section on the 27th um but i remember sitting on my birthday with my husband and my mother and nobody else just the nurses that come in and out thinking to myself i wish i had the doula here oh. like i thought it for so long yeah because i'm a brand new mom yeah. My husband is the father of five, but he's a man. Right. And my mother was there, but she was she was just there. Right. So I felt extremely anxious, guilty, right? Uh yeah. like all these things that I knew were not helping my body along. Right. I, I didn't know that because I knew enough at that point to kind of feel my own body just not okay 
-hmm. And so when I stopped dilating, never dilated anymore after that. And once they gave me the epidural, because I asked for it after like eight hours trying on my own, nothing really happened after that. <laughs> right. Um, but it's like, you know, these, a lot of people complain about the medical field and how quick it is, right? The doctor is in and sees you and he's out mm -hmm. and bless their heart. They have all these things to do. I get it, but it doesn't feel good when you're on the other end. Right. And so the nurses will come in and say things like, I really don't remember, but I'm just uh, improvising here. They'll say something like, you know, if you don't do this, then you're not going to dilate, you know, little comments like that that are part of their job, but they seem insensitive, especially mm -hmm. for sensitive people, right? And for a new mom who has no idea what she's doing, like, right. how do I do that? Um, you know, can I stand up? No, you already have the epidural. Right. Um, you know, can I squat? No, you're too late for that. Oh my gosh, okay. Um, give me the peanut ball. How do you know about that? Well, I did my research. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> right? And so we did everything and... Um, in the end, um, when when my water broke, and they saw that it was filled with meconium, it was just it was just over in a second. And it's so funny because it ended up being twenty eight hours. But C sections are so quick. That kid was born in twenty minutes. <laughs> so I was like, "Whoa, we could have done this like all along if it had been on the plan from the beginning." to just do a C-section, which of course it's always an option, but people tend to, you know, want to do it the hard way or whatever. Right. And so he, he was born at 318 on the day after my birthday, um, nine pounds, one ounce. Mm -hmm. I feel like that may be a reason why also he was not like getting through, uh, I don't know, but that's a big baby. Um, and uh, he was he was okay, but then he got taken to the NICU. He had water in his lungs. I remember my husband saying, he's the most quiet baby I've ever had because he didn't cry right away. And that was part of the problem. But of course, I don't know what I, I don't know anything. Um, and then they took him and I got really sad. <laughs> and um, even to this day, right? He's almost five. There's some separation anxiety for both of us, really. Um, when I go and leave him with a sitter or leave him with my husband or leave him with any capable human being, I feel very anxious. And he's there's that separation anxiety from him as well. So, you know, we'll work on that as he grows up and whatnot. But I sometimes wonder, um, you know, did I have anything to do? And of course, him being taken away, um, I did. As soon as he got taken away and I saw him with all, you know, the the feeding tube yep. and the oxygen, I said, I'm not breastfeeding. Because I look at him, look at him. How am I going to put him through all of the trouble of now this one and now the other one? And now we have to flip you. Like, it just felt like I didn't want to put more on my child. He was being poked on his feet every three hours to get blood. Um he was alone in the NICU. So I just felt, I guess, defeated in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I decided to pump. So I pumped. Um, and even when we got home, I tried to breastfeed and there was a lot of resistance there. Now we know, right, a lot of the issues. 
um, but there was resistance there. And I just felt like, I guess, so responsible for pushing it, <laughs> pushing that due date to when I want it to, which is incredibly selfish, right? Um, that I didn't want to push anymore. So I didn't. And so I just pumped for as long as I could. And then I had to fly to Puerto Rico for a wedding. So I stopped it and I said, okay, it's time for formula because I'm not going to be flying and pumping and alone with a child and all these things. So with a C-section, with a newborn, something's got to give. So I just stopped trying and went to formula. So that's that's pretty much it. I mean, I there's so much here, right, from the perspective of me being a doula. Um, and I think you're right. First, you can't fix any of it. We can't go back and redo it. You know, someone was like, well, what do you think about that situation? Well, you can't have the situation with the intervention and the situation with the same person without the intervention. There's lots of statistics, but I don't I don't know the differences. I don't know what would have happened. Getting your membrane stripped is pretty common. Um, it it can send you into labor. It doesn't always send you into labor. I mean, that's pretty innocuous. It's um, It's definitely a standard for OB. But it's not even that a midwife wouldn't do it for a home birth. It's just a way to kind of wake up your cervix to start things up. Um, so I'm not necessarily for or against it because women have to make their own decision. But that didn't, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, I hope that if we can tackle one thing, it's that I don't feel like you were being selfish trying to get them to be born on a specific day. I think most women, when they're at the end of their pregnancies, want to do the same thing. Maybe they don't have a birthday. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. I know it's coming. <laughs> um, but getting your membrane stripped, it's so common to have your membrane stripped that that doesn't even like stand out as anything that's a big deal to me. Um, if I had been your doula, I would have had to ask you, like, are you doing it for the right reasons? Can this help? Yes. If you go into labor, I mean, you're going to anyway, you're going to go into labor anyway. And if it's a mild thing that can wake up your cervix, especially when you're at the end of like at the very close to your due date or past it, and it's something a woman wants to do, it's, I, I mean, okay, but I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about that. The, the lack of education I think is the single biggest thing with all women, because when we do this the first time, myself included, I mean, that's why I went into this as a profession, you know, you do this for the first time and you think it will just, I don't know what we think, like our bodies will just know and we'll just do it. We depend on the medical staff. We think it will be fine. We don't understand interventions like epidurals and what that means, like in a big picture or at the moment. Um, uh, no, I like I talk about the cascade of interventions, which once you start one thing, then there's the next thing, then there's the next thing, then you're in a C-section. And how can you utilize those as tools of labor and delivery that will help instead of putting you on a conveyor belt of the hospital wanting to get you out the door? And there's so much in that. Um, I'm at the hospital more than I'm at home births at this point. And um, I love it, but I think it's because you learn to navigate that system and what your clients want. And I want my clients to be super educated because I wasn't either, just like you. They finally convinced me to do an epidural. And I was at the very end. And when the anesthesiologist, he started to put the needle in and he pulled it out and said, she's pushing. 
And so I was, the only reason I didn't get one was because I held out long enough and he noticed, or I would have had one at the very end, which is the stupidest thing ever. You know, she was born less than 10 minutes later. So I think the lack of education or misinformation, TikTok is a culture now of misinformation. I mean, not that it's all misinformation, but it started this whole trend of people sharing things in a way that I think is really skewed. And not that it wasn't happening before, it won't happen afterwards, but we have no information or misinformation. And those are terrifying things to go in to have a baby with. Right. Right. And to me, well, of course, now in hindsight, which is 2020, obviously. Right. Um, that birth and actually him was a catalyst for me to work on myself, do the therapy, become a coach and learn all these very simple principles. I feel like that are simple now right? that didn't seem so uh, that we're not in the periphery then like you know, your confidence is directly correlated to your level of preparedness. <laughs> that's that's right. One of my tenants, right. That's one of my tenants when my clients get really nervous and I'm like, well, have you done everything you can to prepare? Well, then, well, then let's reframe to excitement because what are we so nervous about? But I was really nervous back yep. then because I didn't feel like I was prepared enough and I didn't realize it until the very last minute, obviously. And then when I looked around, I thought that's when I thought, you know, was the doula supposed to be here the whole time to hold my hand and to tell me what to do? Because nobody else is telling me, right? Everybody's coming in to check in on me. Everybody's coming in to check on the numbers, but no one is telling me, um, I don't know, breathe. Right. Or just relax your body, right? Nobody there to notice how anxious I was and to say, relax, mama, relax. It's right. going to be fine, right? Right. And your mother and your spouse are great, but they're not professionals in the field. So there's a level of distrust when it comes to your mother saying, you're doing awesome to a medical expert who actually does the saying, you are doing awesome. Okay, well, right. my mother something like I mean that. I I think like the biggest thing with doulas is the education in the beginning so I'm not telling you what to do you already know what you want to do because you've been educated we've talked about it and you've made the decision so I'm supporting you in the decisions you're making I don't have to tell you to do them there's there are often the things that come up that you don't expect but you're educated on if those come up and so we can we can switch gears if we need to. Um, we can change things if we need to. But you, you're you already so educated that you know what you want. And then it's getting that support. Husbands are amazing. I have the most amazing husbands because I want them at the prenatal appointments. It's a prerequisite for me. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm there for the mom, but he's my team. And mothers and in-laws, worst. They're the worst in that room. And I'm a mother. I was a doula for my daughter. And I'm like, I need your list and your preferences. This is, I, you can't be in mommy mode when you're supporting your daughter or your wife in labor. You're watching the person that you love more than anything go through more pain and more stress and more 
uncertainty, even with education, and you you can't be, you can't waffle. You've got to be there and be strong for her and also be educated. And most moms and husbands, if they, if they aren't, they aren't. So they're mm-hmm. a liability. They make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that, and there's a lot of pressures on mothers as well. Like, you know, the, the mother of the mother, um, the grandma, let's call it the grandma. There's a lot of pressure on the grandmas as well. And, and I, in my own ignorance again, right. Um, I never thought about what were her birth of us. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I know that she didn't use epidural and I know that we were not, um, c-sections so she had us okay great but what was that like we never Mm -hmm. had that conversation yeah um my mother doesn't live here so you know we talk on the phone and it's like when you're calling someone who lives far away you don't really get into those investigative conversations of tell me about our birth and how was that right and or between right that you would even think it would make a difference to have that conversation with her, which it would have exactly. made it, it could have made a huge difference in that exactly. situation. Right. Uh, yeah. It's just a lack of knowing like what to ask and who to ask what to and how to ask the question and how to be educated and then how to advocate for yourself. And women don't, we're not taught. I mean, how many women in any situation, right? Educate themselves and advocate for themselves well, set boundaries, say no. Um, are confident and secure, know what they want. Yeah, we don't like you're that. coaching. We right. we aren't good at that. And then you're put in a situation where you're expecting expected to do that. Oh, and also you're going to be in more pain than you've ever been in. And the decision-making part of your brain will shut down naturally in labor because that's what your body should, because you shouldn't be making decisions. Now I want to move forward a little bit because it sounds like he had meconium aspiration. He inhaled the... Um, and, you know, those are one of those things that happen and there's not a lot that you could have done differently, most likely, for that to not happen. And sometimes it's worse than others. But I think as, again, as women, we beat ourselves up like I somehow did this to my son. I, my decisions made this happen. And that's not necessarily true at all. Um, but then the spiral of overwhelm you know, and failing, you already have shame, guilt, and failure. Baby's five minutes old. So not nursing and making, look, you're right. When something's got to give, something's got to give. And breastfeeding is not the only way to feed a child and love them. So, but, you know, I know you, you feel that you feel those decisions. And if you could have done them differently, I want to switch gears though. Um, because I know that wasn't your fault, but I also know you did a lot of work and became a coach and I want to end kind of on how that experience made you want to transition into this and what you do now for people. Sure. Thank you. So I was in real estate and there's a lot of coaching that happens in real estate, especially when you're an agent that works with buyers Mm. because Packing up your family and uprooting them to go to a different city is a major life transition. It demands someone to be there holding your hand. It doesn't seem like it, but that's what a realtor does in most cases. And so for eight years, I was working with buyers specifically, and there's a lot of coaching there, right? A lot of reassurance, a lot of positive psychology, right? When they want to quit the deal and it's like, no, 
let's let's talk about your motivation for this beautiful house right um and so when i had him i was still in real estate um but i did have an aha moment when we came home and i'm looking at my beautiful child a week later uh, that's he was in nicu for 4 days um looking at my beautiful child very quiet i'm just contemplating my newborn right and my mother said to me if you don't talk to him, he will never speak. So it was an aha moment in the sense of advocating for myself. Can I have a moment to look at this beautiful child? Like we have all the time in the world to teach him how to speak. Surely I can take five minutes to observe him. Like I'm a first time mom. I'm still like in freaking freeze mode. I was in freeze mode actually. And so that moment made me really realize, I know I'm a highly sensitive person. I know possibly in the spectrum too. A lot of people believe that highly sensitive people are in the spectrum. Um, and I've known these things about myself my whole life, but now I need to make sure that if he's a highly sensitive child, I advocate for him. I accommodate him. I'm talking you know, highly sensitive people may be sensitive to light or to noise or the TV is too loud or no, I don't like that food because of the texture or this is, you know, choking me. So I want to take it off. And when you're a child who wants to take off a sweater, the mother is like, no, it's cold. How are you going to take off your sweater? You can't. But when you're advocating for a child with special needs, you want to take your sweater off. Let's take it off. Right. And I know those things now, but back then all I had was that moment of like, excuse me, I'm going to have a moment with my child and I will defend this moment with my life. And I just went back to work, right? He went and he had a sitter. My mother went back home, bless her heart. Um, and we went back to life, but then the pandemic started. So he was born in 2019. And with the pandemic, I got furloughed like many other people uh -huh. and so I lost my job and I had to have that conversation of well what's next for me I could still become an agent somewhere else I could work as a, as a real estate agent in another company or you know we could do something different right and we had that conversation and the fact that I was coaching for so long in a sense made me think about going back to school to finish psychology masters to really help people but then the conversation was between a master's degree or a certification, which is very different. Mm -hmm. So I found the most legit certification I could find, got the money together and got certified. And it became a personal work, obviously, of dismantling and advocating and learning all these things and then deciding who am I going to help and how am I going to target people? And so I've been working with highly sensitive people ever since. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it started. I'll never forget that day. If you don't talk to him, you know, as it turns out, I'm pretty nonverbal myself. I will mm. process a hundred things in total quiet. And you may think I'm spaced out. You may think I'm in a bad mood and I'm just processing, right? Right. And what I was doing. Um. So how yeah. did you realize you're, 
the furlough happened, COVID happened, you switched gears, which was a blessing in disguise. At what point, because I have a son who's an adult now, um, most of my kids are adults, he's 25 and he's autistic and he's moderately autistic and he's in an independent living program and I'm very proud of that. Um, when, when he was two, we knew he was behind. Like there are certain markers. He potty trained easier than any of the other kids, but there were other things like that were markers that were he was not meeting his verbal markers were one of them but you know 25 years ago 20 20 years ago they didn't know as much as they know now but when did you start to notice things were different other than your mom saying he'll never talk if you don't talk to them I mean yes and no I think that that's true but it made you aware she was anxious too let's just call her comment anxiety right okay like because what kind of comment is that, please? I am going not to not a great it. one. Not a great. I mean, one. <laughs> we're talking about a four-day-old. Like we have all the time in the world to talk to him. Where is this coming from? So you know, right. Um. So there were a lot of red flags that I, not necessarily ignored or disregarded, but we we just held off to see. For example, okay. I'm bilingual. My first language is Spanish. Everybody in my family speaks Spanish. Everybody in our home, my stepchildren and my husband speak English. And when okay. he was born, I said to myself, oh, he needs to be bilingual. So many open doors, so many opportunities. So I'm going to speak to him in Spanish and everybody else can speak to him in English, blah, 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 blah. And for okay. bilingual toddlers, some of them are delayed because... I mean, you're speaking to them in two languages. So right. where do I start? Right. And so he turned two and didn't speak much. He turned three and started with some phrases and whatnot. But the pediatrician was always like, if he's bilingual, let's just wait. If he's bilingual, we're okay. going to wait. Right. Okay. That's fine. Now, when he turned four, um, I started noticing other things like the very obvious neurodivergent signs and struggling with transitions and um, no, I want this this way, not the way mama is telling me, right? Preference okay. for foods. He When he was a toddler, I would get him all messy with pasta and whatnot. I mean, when he was an infant. And then once he turned two and three, he's like, Nope, 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 nope. Right. So we started making notes of those things. And when he turned three and a half, I said to my husband, I would like to try something because I want him to speak. Right. Don't we want him to get along? I want to try right. dropping the Spanish. I want to try dropping that pressure because everybody else in the house speaks English. I have two of those teenagers still here. Right. So everybody speaks English with him except mama. So I said, why don't we try dropping it and see what happens with his language development? And by the time he was four, he was saying so many things. I'm talking nine word sentences. I'm so excited to go to the park. Okay. I'm so excited to get in the car. You know, can I go outside to play with the dolphin? What? Yeah, you can go outside to play with the dolphin. And so I dropped the bilingual. I'm over it. Okay. You know, um, he'll learn if he wants to, it'll be his choice and I'm not going to push it. Right. Which I think right. it's like where a lot of frustration 
comes in for parents, right? And so he started talking great and it kind of eased on the pressure of, well, is he neurodivergent? Is he special needs and whatnot? Until the summer came for me to really make sure he was potty trained to go into pre-K. Right. And that's that's when my pushing for that really caused a regression in other areas. And that's when we were like, oh, okay. So we really do need to look into this. We really do need professional help. I'm really out of my depth here. So let's get those things done. And that was the thing because there's a, there's a profile. Sorry, I, I thought classification, but it's profile. There's a profile under the autism spectrum that has to do with the child's need. I'm talking subconscious for autonomy equality and um, autonomy and equality. That's basically it. And so if he's in that profile, whatever you push on him, his brain will be like, nope, that's not me. I don't want to do that. And we'll get blocked. And when a child is blocked like that in survival brain, there's no learning. There's, right. there's no, there's nothing that can happen. And so when I started pushing, no, but you have to go to school. We're so excited to go to school in the fall. We're going to, here's the little toilet. Here's your potty, blah, blah, blah. Let's do this. Run, 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 right? Go to the toilet, go to the potty, all of that. Like I, I stress myself out just thinking about it, right? Like all of that, go, go, go. Like some children just don't, don't flow like that. Right. And so that was the moment. Um, so right now he's homeschooled. He will be homeschooled for as long as it needs to be we will accommodate him however but that was the moment for us to be like wait a minute i mean that's not normal right right you know being a little delayed in the speech bilingual okay fine um doing these things and doing other things it's like well you know he's still extremely affectionate looks at you in the eye and has all these other things right um he loves to play with his older siblings, even though they're much older. Uh, he loves the dogs. He's not necessarily gentle, but what kid is gentle with a dog, right? Um, he has food preferences, but Dada is very picky, so, right? So we had all these things, but when potty training was the one red flag that I was like, surely um, it shouldn't be this difficult. Right. Um, or, or not difficult, hmm. but it shouldn't seem like such a danger to him. And that's that's the PDA profile. The Whatever it is, it could be, here's an ice cream. And the child touches it and did not realize that it was cold. And if that's the profile, the PDA profile, the brain will say, nope. And the child drops the ice cream. Right. They do it on purpose. No, but yeah. I want to end with a question. How has your coaching business helped your parenting and your parenting helped your coaching business? Oh, such a great question. And it's difficult to navigate, right? Like, am I a parent right now or am I a coach? Um, with Elijah, because he's only four and he has inadvertently categorized me as the safe person so currently mm -hmm. I'm the one that understands everything he says I'm the one that anticipates his needs right um yeah. but with the with the teenagers it's you know do you want me to be your stepmom right now or 
do you want me to coach you? Because coaching is asking questions and holding space. But if I'm your mother, I'm going to give you advice, <laughs> right? Um, right? Or I'm going to hope that you do something specific. But it's transformed our life in that way. Uh, even our conversations, our spousal conversations have transformed because it's the same thing. Do you want my opinion or would you like me to ask some yep. objective questions that could really bring your perspective to the broader lens? I now feel like everybody should hire a coach at some point. Mm -hmm. um, if anybody listening is already in therapy, a lot of people like myself do both at the same time. And it's uh, very complimentary like that. So it, it transformed our life to the better. Absolutely. And it tends to get me out of my own anxiety because I'll switch my, my own demeanor from the anxious mother to the professional who detaches and yep. sees with perspective and it's hard because I'm a mom so I want everything for him and I want him to be super comfortable but at the same time I have to challenge him right yeah and so becoming a coach really has given me like that kind of vote of confidence that oh okay I'm that's gonna, a great way to put it right I'm gonna push you and I know I know you're okay and I know I'm okay on my end and let's see what happens. Let's experiment. That's a huge word in coaching, right? Experimenting with things until something really clicks without the pressure, without somebody else's agenda, right? Um, and so it's been wonderful in that way. Graciela, thank you so much for being on. I appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you. I was so fun. I didn't know what to expect. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to talk about my birth for the first time ever, probably the last. And <laughs> And I'm just so grateful and, and grateful for women like you who assist others in such a magical way. I mean, you are such a bridge, right? Oh, bridge thank you. This experience. And, and that's a magical task. So I, I love that you do that. 